Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Labor Minister Seamus O'Regan joins us to talk about Canada's labor shortage. How closely do you adhere to best before dates? It's another massive game for the struggling Tiger Cats. A new outdoor space is being celebrated by city kids. And do you know Hamilton owns two sunken American naval warships? The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. As we know, one of the big issues in this country, really in many countries around the world, is the shortage of skilled laborers. And it has impacted many sectors across this country. Here to talk about it is, well, the guy who sets the tone nationally for this sort of thing, the Honorable Seamus O'Regan. He's the Minister of Labor and the Liberal MP for St. John's South Mount Pearl. Mr. O'Regan, thanks for joining us on the show today. How are you? I'm well, Rick. Thanks for having me. You visited Hamilton a month ago and called the labor shortage in the construction industry a top priority. How is the government addressing this pressing issue? So work with unions first and foremost. So a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of the skilled trades and in, 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 in construction are unionized. They have you know strong, capable unions that that amplify their voices, that advocate for them. Um, and you know, a long time ago, they addressed us that they could see a labor shortage coming. COVID has, you know, done lots of things, as we all know, you know, in society that we're still reeling from, to be honest. Um, If you had told me, Rick, that, you know, two years ago, coming out of COVID, we would have the highest employment uh, level in, you know, modern Canadian history and the lowest unemployment level, I would have happily taken that. Uh, um, And I'm still very happy and grateful, but it's a problem. Uh, we have a labor shortage problem. It's serious. Uh, it's a it's an urgent issue in the skilled trades. Uh, we have about seven hundred thousand skilled trade workers that are expected to retire between twenty nineteen and twenty twenty eight. Uh, Leuna alone, when I was in uh, Hamilton, Joe Joe Mancinelli uh, told me that you know his union alone would hire thirty thousand new workers just in Ontario. Uh, right now. So we need to recruit. We need to train thousands more. So we're working with Leona. We're working with unions right across the country. I was speaking at uh, Unifor uh, at their AGM. Um, we're working with unions. We're doubling a program that we have with them called the Union Training and Innovation Program, which funds unions who are doing a great job on training apprentices. Uh, I was with um, I was out on a, on a site today, actually, in Toronto. Uh, meeting with a whole group of young people in a program called Hammerheads that is introducing young people who may not have thought of the skilled trades before. And I don't know about you, Rick, but I mean, I had exposure to trades in high school. Um, and, and, you know, that was really, it was important. It changed lives. And we've gotten away from that. And so we have to find new ways to introduce young people to it. Now, the problem is that a lot of, you know, introducing young people is great, but we won't get the payoff for that for, you know, another few years. We actually need people now. So, you know, we've been we've invested like a billion dollars annually in apprenticeship, you know, through grants and loans and tax credits. We've got EI benefits for in-school training, for project funding. And, you know, we're launching a union led advisory table uh, to advise us on how all of this is changing and what we can do right now. And interestingly, that my colleague, uh, Minister Sean Fraser, the Minister of Immigration, also attended the Unifor AGM. And that's because it's very clear to us that uh, attracting new Canadians uh, to this country with those skill trades is going to be really important. So it's it's a, it's it's not just me, although I agree with you, I do set the tone. Um, but it's it's well a whole bunch of my colleagues too around the cabinet table. This is a this is a national priority. 
Is there a perception, you know, when, when I was back in high school, and this is this is several years ago, the perception of it was, you know, don't get into the trades. You want a white collar job. I remember my mom telling me that, you know, your dad has slugged it out being a contractor and a carpenter. I want you to find a job where you can work in a suit and a tie. And while I can, I don't choose to, uh, you know, a golf shirt is my wear. But as the perception mm-hmm. of skilled trades changed and for the better? I think it's changing. And I think it's changing because like even with these hammerheads, uh, you know, one of the one of the uh, coordinators and sponsors of the program told me, look, you know, they're very strict on, on these young people because, you know, making sure like if they show up late, they're, they're gone. Um, they have to make sure that they're well trained and professional because coming out of it, Rick, they're getting paid 100 grand. That's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and this program, uh, it's it's at full capacity. We got to find ways to increase. I think it's capacity, but it's at full capacity by word of mouth. So these are, you know, young people telling other young people, this is the direction to go in for really fulfilling, interesting work with your hands, getting stuff done, solving problems and getting paid really good money. Uh, you know, that's a pretty great combination. So, you know, hopefully those things will help attract it. I think we got to find ways to expose more people to it. And I think specifically we got to find ways to expose more women, uh, more indigenous peoples, um, you know, more LGBTQ. These are all underrepresented in the trades right now and in construction. And, you know, I, what I say, look, this isn't just a matter of representation, although I think that's really important. Uh, if you don't have all the, you know, if you're not including everybody, you're not getting the best people. So, we, you know, that's something else that I've been, I've been concentrating on. So I think, I think the exposure has changed things. Look, I got a master's in philosophy. I'm, I'm lucky to have a job at all. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but you know, so I look at these guys and I said to them today, you're, you're the smartest, you're the smartest people in this room. Uh, cause you, you know, the decision and the choices that you've made and, and you could you, the pride that they have in even making this decision upon entering this program. It's, it's really something. Well, I'm in the media, so I'm in a I'm in a rung even below you, but uh, we'll, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> so uh, was I. So was I. <laughs> Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, the Honorable Seamus O'Regan. He is the Labor Minister for uh, our nation. Uh, I want to ask you about what the Ontario government is committed to doing in terms of building homes, because housing affordability we know is a major issue, and the skilled mm-hmm. trades play a part in that, because oh. over the next 10 years, the Ford government is projecting to build, or he's promising to build, one and a half million homes. That's 150 year, about double what we currently have, 150,000 homes a year doesn't seem feasible given where we are with the labor shortage. Can we get there? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a, a great will and desire to get there. Um, so I have to be optimistic and think, yeah, I think that, you know, we, we have to at least try, that's for sure. Um, and, you know, I applaud the efforts of the Ontario government to get more housing in. Um, and I would also say, look, you know, it's I think it's it's notable that they are focusing so much on skilled trades, that they are focusing so much on immigration. Um, and, you know, what can we do to just kind of knock down some of those barriers provincially and federally? Uh, that exists that prevent people from getting into these positions, particularly like I think of foreign credentials. And, and you know, we're making headway there. Uh, we need to make more. Um, you know, it's, uh, I represent, um, you know, the, the workforce and, and the employers of about, uh, about 6% of, of the entire workforce, 6% of employers that's in the federal space. The rest is all in the in provincial and territorial space. So it is really important that we work together. It is, uh, and I do, I, I take great pride in, in uh, working closely with my provincial and territorial colleagues and uh, getting around the table and figuring out, okay, what can we do here? 
one of the big things that we do immediately and we're, we're focusing on it is labor mobility, which basically means, you know, if I work in Ontario or if, let's say somebody's, you know, in BC or Alberta, um, they're finished their project, they hear of great work in Ontario, how can we get them in Ontario? So even within our own country, how can we move workers to where the work is with less hassle? We put in a labor mobility tax uh, deduction so that uh, more workers could write off the price of travel and, and getting around. Um, you know, that that that's going to be helpful. But we need to knock down some barriers between provinces, amongst provinces, to to make sure that workers can go to where the work is. We had uh, Rocco Rossi, the uh, president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, on the show yeah. the other day after the uh, provincial budget was passed down. And he made mention, and, and you would know more than I, of uh, workers in the skilled trades who are uh, living in Ontario, working in places like Manitoba, but then crossing over the border. And that, that certification or that accreditation, those hours don't count against what they're trying to build here in Ontario. Can that be fixed? Is that something that you're looking at? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, it's something that we have to look at. That's for sure. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want we put we put certain things in place in order to protect workers and to protect jobs. We you know, but the world has changed. And and now, you know, we don't have nearly enough workers for all the work that needs to get done in this country. Uh, you know, whether it's on housing, whether it's on lowering emissions, whether it's electrifying the grid, um, you know, we need more. So, look, what I would say and this, you know kind of a, a high level answer as we call it but but you know we're committed to knocking down those barriers wherever we can find them and uh, so I'll work with like I said I'll work with anybody but most particularly with my provincial and territorial colleagues to do it uh, one more question with uh, Labor Minister yeah. Seamus O'Regan here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. The green economy. Canada is committed yeah. to being a world leader in this uh, aspect when it comes to uh, net zero emissions within the next few decades. How is that going to impact the labor force? But they lead it. So that's the thing. We're, we can't lower emissions without workers. Uh, you know, this isn't some, you know, I, I keep getting asked this question, please, you know, uh, as we as we green the economy, as, low, as we lower emissions, um, don't leave workers behind. I'm like, leave workers behind? You guys are leading it. I don't know where the hell to to, to tighten a, a bolt or a screw on a pipeline to, to figure out how to make sure it leaks less methane. I don't know how to erect solar panels and, and wind turbines. This is completely worker-led. Um, you know, what, where the government comes in working, you know, sitting at a table with workers and with employers is, is figuring out just, you know, how do we incent the work? How do we get it done? Um, but you know, I, it's urgent work that needs to get done. I'm a former minister of natural resources. I was for two years. Um, the prime minister, when he, uh, moved me onto the labor portfolio, uh, asked me to uh, hold on to my responsibilities on, on just transition, as we call it, which is a phrase that makes workers cringe because it, it sounds like something ominous that the government's cooking up. It, it really is about working with unions, working with workers on like, how do we lower emissions? How do we make sure that the Canadian economy stays competitive? How do we make sure that uh, people don't see their energy bills or, or such, you know, skyrocket? How do we all work together to lower emissions urgently and assure the continued prosperity of the Canadian economy? Um, and, you know, that's a big challenge. Um, so, you know, full core press. And I am you know, I am all in. Uh, my province, Newfoundland and Labrador, is an oil-producing province. Um, we actually depend more on the oil industry than even Alberta. It's about fifty percent of our of our provincial economy. So we got to get it right. Uh, too many jobs on the line. Too many people working in this space in this country. Canada is the fourth biggest producer of oil in the world, and the world is looking to us. You know, to see how we're how we're going to do it. But we're committed to doing it because we have to. This is uh, this is for our children, for our grandchildren. 
I would even argue it's for the present. Uh, you know, we're seeing the effects of climate change. We have to minimize them. Um, and that's a national priority. But as a, as a country that is still proudly a natural resource country, we got to figure out how to do it. I mean, with, you know, and at the same time, maintaining the prosperity of this country, but workers will be at the center of it. They will lead it. Uh, I've assured them of that. No secrets, no hidden deals, no star chamber. Um, this is them leading it and it will happen with them. The automotive industry here in Ontario has certainly jumped in with two feet. They've um, almost been forced to do so. Uh, what's the next bis- biggest sector to, to follow suit? You know, you say forced to do so, and I hear you, but honest to God, I think it's real leadership. I think it's leadership from unions like Unifor. I think it's leadership from governments, and I think it's leadership from the automotive industry in this country. We're really good at building cars. We know, and I keep quoting Gretzky on this, we know, you know, you got to skate to where the puck is going. We know which way it's going. It's inevitable. Um, You know, we need to lower emissions. Uh, Transportation, cars, trucks, it's a leading cause of it. We've committed to, you know, not building uh, or selling any um, any cars with internal combustion engines. Uh, that deadline is going to, you know, is approaching. So we got to get this industry ready, and it's getting ready. That's the good news. We're going to be building EVs in Ontario, uh, but more importantly, we're also going to be building. Not more importantly, but I think equally importantly, we're going to be building the batteries and and mining the critical minerals that are necessary for those batteries in canada building from those critical minerals batteries in canada batteries that will go into evs in canada uh you know this is this is really something and uh and you know my colleagues around the cabinet table work very hard on it and and making sure that we're that the americans realize how integrated our automotive industry is and i think we're we're there now we got a bit of a scare with their with their evs uh you know they were considering tax credits that would only uh support uh completely american made we we made the very fair and real case that guys this is a completely integrated market this is a completely integrated industry that travels the border three four five times uh between various parts in order to make a single car uh don't take away north america's competitive advantage uh over the japanese and germans and chinese we have a workforce uh, across both sides of that border that work really well together and now we will work together again and now on evs i think it's this is just phenomenal news for ontario Minister O'Regan, I've taken up much more than uh, I was allotted, but I really appreciate your time. (laughs) Best of luck going forward and making this country the best uh, to work, live and play. And uh, we'll talk to you down the road. All right. Thanks a million, Rick. Appreciate it. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Here's an interesting question. We've been talking about food waste and food prices uh, for the last number of months now. And there's a situation in the United Kingdom in which many grocery stores have now removed best before dates from produce in an effort to help reduce food waste, which, as, as we know, is a massive problem. The question is, is doing so going to help in that regard? Dr. Keith Warner is a professor in the Department of Food Science at Ontario Agricultural College at the University of Guelph and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Warner, good morning. How are you? Oh, good afternoon. Uh, yeah, good morning. I was going to say good afternoon, man. Uh, good morning, Rick. <laughs> oh, yeah. Let, let's start with the basics here, because I'm fascinated by this. How are best before dates determined, and how accurate are they? So, basically, what the processor has to do, you know, the person in supplying the food, has to kind of think, what's the worst thing consumers can do? When could they just put the product in the back of a car for two hours or in the sunshine, store at room temperature and things like that? So what they need to do is try to use the worst-case scenario and then say, well, according to uh, our predictions, and it is, uh, all things can go wrong, 
is that they'll give you a date. And this date isn't really to his safety. It is in a case of a few uh, sort of products. But basically, saying after this date, the quality will start deteriorating. And because it's the worst case scenario, as you can imagine, they're very conservative. So, you know, this is why people say, well, you know, it's way past the way before date, but it's still good. Uh, so it's a very hard job for processors because they literally have to say what's the worst thing people can do. So that worst case scenario, how far, I guess, in advance is that best before date? Is it a week or two? Well, it really depends. You know, if we um, saw things really good, you know, do it properly, you know, don't leave it in the back of the car for overnight and then bring it back and put it in the fridge and things like this. So in certain circumstances, it can be way off. So eggs is a really good example of this. So with eggs, they put a three-week shelf life on them. But because of the technology and the fridges working well and people doing the right thing, yeah, they could last up to uh, twice as long. Uh, so uh, this is a problem is that, and it's quite interesting statistic, over half of us, go by the best before date rather than look at the products or things like that. So this is what's the incentive to say, well, if we take that date away, then uh, obviously there's nothing to look at and therefore they won't keep throwing stuff away. <laughs> Most of the food that we do throw, throw away is produce, um, but more often than not, are we tossing it too soon? Well, it's quite interesting. You're right. Uh, over 40% of uh, the food waste is made up of fruit and vegetables. And, you know, when we buy the fruit and vegetables in the pack, uh, we look at the best before dates, and a lot of the time we do throw them away too soon. Uh, and, you know, it comes back to what we started with, is that what process... I'll give you a good example of uh, the most uh, disposed of uh, vegetable. I don't know if you know it by any chance. Uh, I will guess say? tomato. Oh, you're close. It's potato. Really? <laughs> oh, it? So with potatoes, for example... Um, the ideal story uh, situation is to put them in the fridge. And, you know, I don't know how many people put them in the fridge, but they'll have a best before date on them. And when people see the best before date, they say, oh, it's got over, let's just throw them out. Uh, that's what they do. But as uh, we talked about, a lot of the, especially with fresh produce, it really depends how you handle it, so how you store it. And a lot of the times, especially lettuce, I think, in, in some ways, it just gets thrown out before you actually say, well, no, it actually looks quite good still. So <laughs> all these kind of things uh, put into it. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Dr. Keith Warner, a food science professor at the University of Guelph. We're talking about best before dates because, as I mentioned, some stores in the UK are removing these best before dates from produce to help reduce food waste. The question is, doctor, is this going to work? Well, I don't think it is. And uh, basically what's happening is that uh, over in the UK, as you rightly said, the big retailers are going to take away the dates so people have got nothing to look at. But it's got a code for the retailers to interpret. And what's going to happen, I think, is that um, ordinarily what would happen is once you get the best before date, the retailer has to throw it or put it in the 50% bin. But now they can just let it ride on that shelf uh, as long as uh, somebody's going to buy it. And the unsuspecting customer will come along, they'll buy their, for example, bag of potatoes, uh, they'll take them home, and rather than lasting four or five weeks, it could start sprouting within a week. And so you can say, well, who the net result's the same. If the retailer doesn't throw it away, the consumer will, and the consumer's had the privilege of paying for it. And the other sort of uh, added on is that, say you do get a bag of potatoes that start spoiling within a few days, could you take them back 
to the retailer and say, I want my money back. And you know, I think that's what they're going to suffer from in, um, over there. <laughs> I think from a business perspective, I would imagine that the retailers would want to keep the best before dates because it's ingrained in our mind that once that date passes, it's like, uh-oh, i got to throw this out and get some more. It is in a way, but uh, they're conscious of the fact that it actually does cost some money to dispose of uh, products. So uh, I don't know if you know this sort of trend that was happening, well, it probably still is happening, where literally uh, people raid the dumpster of uh, supermarkets to get at the sort of food in there. Yes. And so it's a, you know, a PR thing. You know, you get these programs saying, oh, look at what this store's throwing away and all that. In actual fact, getting rid of the best before date is good for them. They can keep a product for longer. They can... Uh, they know what uh, where the uh, sort of sign is or the date is, and they can just sell it because that's what they want to do. They want maximum time on the shelf, maximum people buying it. They don't want to throw anything away. It's uh, it's quite interesting how they spun it, but you know, that's, what, that's what retailers do, I guess, isn't it? We'll see how it proceeds in the UK, and who knows, maybe sometime soon it'll uh, come across the ocean and here to Canada as well. Dr. Warner, thank you for your time today. No, thank you. That is Dr. Keith Warner, a professor in the Department of Food Science at the Ontario Agricultural College at the University of Guelph with some insight on some best before dates and what's happening in the UK. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Dane Evans, back to pass, has to roll to his right, has Don Jackson to his right, but throws over the middle. He was looking for Jake Bird. It's picked off by Chris Edwards, the 20, the 15, the 10. It is a touchdown. Chris Edwards, the pick six for Toronto with a minute 48 that is RJ Broadhead on the Ticats Audio Network. You will hear him tonight as it's part two of Tiger Cats Argos, the rematch, and the second of four games between these two arch rivals in the next three weeks. And despite a dismal two and six start to the season, I spoke with head coach Rolando Steinauer the other day, and he says he's not contemplating any changes to his coaching staff. The coaching staff has the full support of me, and I understand from the inside out what we're dealing with, who we're dealing with, the injuries that we're dealing with, the improvements, the things that we've asked to change, they've changed. I don't have any entertainment for that. You know, I don't. There's nothing to. There's nothing to really talk about. That is Coach O, and he will try to guide the black and gold to a W tonight in a much-needed win at that. Pre-game show here on CHML begins at 6.30, kickoff at 7.30, half hour after the game. It's the fifth quarter, brought to you by Eastgate Ford. Joining me on the pre-game show tonight on CHML and Ticats Audio Network is our next guest, Andy Fantuz, former Ticats All-Star receiver and now an analyst with the Ticats Audio Network. Andy, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Looking forward to working with you tonight. Yeah, it should be a lot of fun. There's there's some a lot of great talking points going into tonight's game. First and foremost, Brandon Banks returned to Tim Hortons Fields. Uh, how do you think he's going to do? What do you think the reception is going to be like? Uh, well, I mean, I think there'll be a bit of a mixed reception, but I, I really hope it's it's mostly positive. Uh, you know, he he did so many uh, great things here for the city and 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 being a part of the Tie Cats and really devoted his whole life so i hope he gets applauded and cheered and then uh you know once the game starts of course uh he's on a double blue so you can't expect too much from uh <laughs> tiger town nation but um yeah but he was you know 
uh, I, I hope he I hope he gets a good reception. I hope so too. You were a an all star receiver with the Saskatchewan Rough Riders before you landed in Hamilton. Your first game as a Tie Cat in Saskatchewan, July twenty eighth, twenty twelve. You had two catches for thirty nine yards. Henry Burris throws four touchdowns in a thirty five thirty four win at Mosaic Stadium. What was your mindset going into that game? You know, it it was a it was a, diff, a little bit strange, a little nerve wracking. I mean. Uh, uh, I had the same sort of thing where I had a lot of cheers, especially before the game. But when I was running out, I was a mix of cheers and boos. But um, it, it, you know, it, you couldn't help but kind of feel your surroundings a bit. And, and uh, uh, so, whether you call it a bit of a distraction or adversity, um, but like you know, one thing in football, it's always guaranteed is adversity. So, and in life, same thing. So, anyways. Uh, it was mixed emotions going in, and it was nice to go in and get a win. Um, but you could certainly kind of feel like your surroundings and just a different, different than any other experience I had. Yeah, I ma- imagine you're so used to going in the in the locker room and doing certain things uh, as a member of the home team, and then when you're dealt <laughs> and, and go to a, a different team, it's a whole different feeling. The other big talking point tonight is that Dane Evans is out with a shoulder injury. Matt Schiltz is going to make his first start as a Ticat. What should we expect from Matt and the Ticats offense? Well, Matt's, Matt's played a decent amount this year in certain packages, and he's shown that his athleticism is really top-notch. So I expect uh, Tommy to get him moving a lot, a lot of repass options where he can roll out and, and look downfield to throw uh, or, or run the ball if he needs to. Uh, you know, I hope he's, he's smart when he does run because, um, the, you know, one thing that for sure can happen is if he, if he goes down. So we got to keep him healthy. Um, but I expect the, you know, Tommy to really do a lot of uh, a lot of movement, a lot of movement laterally before the snap and, and post snap, and and really have pieces going in all different directions and try to try to create some confusion. Um, and then uh, and another thing with that that's important is the defense might get sucked up to the line of scrimmage. So hopefully he we do uh, see some shots downfield over the top. It's going to be fascinating to watch. Andy, looking forward to working with you on the pregame show tonight and throughout the broadcast on the Ticats Audio Network and here on 900 CHML. Appreciate the time, and uh, we'll see you later. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks, Rick. That's Andy Fantuz, former Ticats star receiver, now an analyst with the Ticats Audio Network. One stat to keep in mind is the second half, because it has been ugly for Hamilton this year. They've been outscored 145-58. to 58. Not good. they got to improve their second half performances. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Coming up in a few days, there is going to be a big celebration involving City Kids. It's set to unveil a new revitalized outdoor space and celebrate the completion of phase one of this project. So what in the world is going on? Laura Carmichael is an associate executive director at City Kids and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Laura, welcome to the show. How are you? Good morning. Thanks for having me. Doing well. So what is happening on August the 16th? What is happening? Great question. So, you know, at City Kids, we've just been emerging from COVID and we've been rebuilding all of our programs. And part of this, what we've wanted to do is we've started a three to five year project to transform our property here at 601 Burlington Street to create an outdoor space for our program. So for all of our children and youth ages 3 to 17 to be able to play outside, to be able to have programs, games, 
And this uh, event on Tuesday is celebrating the completion of phase one, which is just really starting the project uh, to be able to get a space that's wide enough and big enough for all the kids to be in um, and then to continue to dream for what's to come next. So what does this space look like now? And I know there's other phases to this. What is it eventually going to look like? Great question. So right now, again, it's just phase one. So in phase one, it's been uh, creating a space in our front area that's going to be, well, that is actually a fenced-in space with a wide lawn uh, that the kids can be in safely and where we can have a lot of opportunity to uh, do small group games or to do large group games with the kids. Moving forward into future phases, the plans are really still being established, but and we want to be able to involve the kids in that and some experts on it, but we have hopes of creating opportunity for outdoor theater programming, some sports equipment stations, things like that. You might get some pretty wild ideas if you get the kids involved. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but they are our experts and we want this to be a meaningful space for them. So we're counting on their opinions. <laughs> What's going to be the impact of this facility? Because as we know, you know, over the last couple of years, uh, especially early on in the pandemic, we were all shuttered inside. Many of those being kids, they couldn't go to school. They were learning virtually. How impactful is this outdoor space going to be? I think one of the greatest impacts is that it allows us to add this layer of programming that we may not be able to do if we were only inside. So this isn't a new program. It's an extension of our programs. But it means that if we are in, an op- in a situation where we can't do our programming in our theaters, as we normally do, we could have programming outside with the kids. So it allows us to keep the relationships, to keep the presence in the kids' lives, to continue to offer that inspirational experience for the children, regardless of um, other things that are happening. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Laura Carmichael, Associate Executive Director at City Kids. They're about to unveil the name of its revitalized outdoor space on Burlington Street and celebrate this first phase of the project. I know you don't want to spill the beans on the name, but can you give us a hint? Ooh, that's a that's a good question. Um, I can't give you too much of a hint, but I will say that it is reflective of what we hope for this space to be um, in the future. <laughs> All right, we'll leave it at that. I don't want you to get in any trouble. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's talk about breaking the cycle of poverty because city kids, I mean, that's what it's all about, is getting mm-hmm. uh, kids involved in activities, learning from each other, and becoming better people. How do we break that cycle? It's a, a process that is, of course, something that's not done quickly. It takes a, a long time to do so. And I, at City Kids, one of the things that we want to do is to journey with kids. So we have about 1,200 children, over 600 families, from the time that they're three until about 17 years old. And we believe that as we come alongside them and their caregivers, their, their families, we're able to offer that stability and that support, and that through that relationships combined with uh, these experiences that allow them to see more than what they may currently see. So whether that's being outside in nature or having an amazing experience in the theater, they can dream big. And we believe that when our children and youth, when they're able to have a dream and when they're able to have people around them who believe in them, who cheer them on, um, that that is how the cycle of poverty is broken, one step at a time, one child at a time. That is awesome. And we know that the CHML Children's Fund plays a big part in raising donations for a number of organizations in the city, including City Kids. And we know that donations are always appreciated. But do you guys also need volunteers to help deliver these programs? We absolutely need volunteers. And, you know, throughout um, COVID, it's been a real challenge because there's many times that we haven't been able to have volunteers, of course, but as we've been rebuilding our programs, we have a huge need for volunteers. We are grateful for the amazing team that we have. But if anyone wanted to join our team, we would welcome them. They should just visit our website at citykids.ca. That's kids with a Z. 
uh, to learn more about it. Fantastic programming, a wonderful uh, initiative with this outdoor space. Uh, there's going to be a lot of kids, at, not only in, in the next few months, but in the in the next several years and years to come, going to enjoy this space and learn a lot about themselves and each other. Laura, really thanks for the time, and uh, good luck with uh, this outdoor space and what's to come in the uh, in the next few phases. Thank you so much. That's Laura Carmichael, Associate Executive Director at City Kids. And again, if you, if you want to make a donation or you want to volunteer at City Kids, City Kids with a Z, citykids.ca. They have so many amazing programs and help so many um, kids that need a lift up and a step up and a step forward to a bigger and brighter future. The final project in this whole phased-in approach of these uh, outdoor spaces at City Kids is a plan for a completion in 2025. So it's going to be great to see out on Burlington Street what the eventual uh, design of this outdoor space kind of looks like. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. City of Hamilton, as you heard in Do You Know just moments ago, owns two sunken American naval warships from the War of 1812, and they sit at the bottom of Lake Ontario. There's been, you know, some news stories over the years, but not not a lot of attention has been paid to what could be a pretty cool tourist attraction. The trouble is, you got to go into the into the lake to see it, and really no one's allowed unless you're an archaeologist. So the question is, what does the city have planned, if anything, to do with the Hamilton and Scourge? Mark McNeil is a contributing columnist with the Hamilton Spectator and has written about these two vessels over the years and joins us now on GMH. Mark, good morning. Welcome to the program. Hey, Rick. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you today? Excellent. Excellent. You've written about this topic for, for a few years now. These two American warships sank 209 years ago earlier this week. And you recently, as you wrote in The Spectator, you recently visited the 1812 Naval Memorial in Confederation Park. Tell us about your visit. Yeah, I just uh, was walking by the wa- waterfront and uh, decided to go over the little bridge and in, in, into the... Uh, memorial area and uh and it occurred to me that not, not much has been said about the uh scourge at hamilton in recent years and uh and i uh decided to make some calls and try to find out uh, you know if anything was happening and in short nothing's really happening but before we get to that this is an interesting story because the city of Hamilton owns these two sunken vessels, and they have for years. But it's interesting on a number of fronts because, number one, they're not Canadian boats. And number two, they went down in waters that are really nowhere near our city. Yeah, it was a, a very uh, weird set of uh, circumstances. You know, I, I write about history, and and, and usually uh, when you look back on, on things, they, they make sense. You know, things evolve in a natural way. Uh, in this case, it was uh, really the the role of personality that they kind of uh, led to this uh, strange outcome of the city of Hamilton, kind of annexing almost these really kilometers away, uh, eleven out in from Port uh, Dalhousie. Um, you know, kind of kind of a strange looking back on it now uh, that, that they are owned by the city of Hamilton. Um, and still remain to be. Uh, obviously, at the time, there was uh, there was a sense that they could be raised and turned into a tourist attraction. But you know, forty years later, uh, the ships are no closer to Hamilton. And the the ownership of these vessels was really the brainchild of a former alderman by the name of Bill McCullough. Yeah, that's correct. He he was a huge history buff, and and he he was over the moon uh, with this discovery. 
and um, you know went went to the nth degree to uh, to um, have Hamilton um, uh, take uh, ownership. Uh, it, that that involved the uh, U.S. Navy uh, agreeing to it, uh, um, a bill in uh, the American Congress, as well as the um, uh, province of Ontario had to agree. Mark McNeil is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Mark is a contributing columnist with the Hamilton Spectator and has written extensively about the Hamilton and Scourge over the years, two American warships that sank 209 years ago this week during the War of 1812. It, they didn't sink during an actual battle. They were just enveloped by a huge squall on Lake Ontario back in 1813. Was there an appetite to pull them up to dry land at one point, and where does that stand now? Yeah, back then there was uh, uh, the Mary Rose in, in, in England was uh, was raised and 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 that was uh, um, seen as uh, inspiration um, for for a similar venture. Here, the Mary Rose is a much larger ship and and not really in as as uh, great a shape. Uh, much more uh, historically uh, of interest. Uh, there's also a ship called the Vasa in uh, Sweden that was raised uh, before that. Uh, so the the thinking was that they could do the same thing here, uh, but uh, when they looked into the project in, in more detail, they uh, it got caught up in a lot of concerns about uh, it being a money pit, and and there was also great fears along the way that the uh, that the ships would be um, um, the schooners would be seriously damaged if if an attempt was made. Is there an option to rebuild them at all, or is it just not worth it? Well, that was another idea that was uh, floated, and, um, and that never really got any uh, traction uh, either. Um, the thinking was that may- maybe one of the ships could be uh, reproduced and um, or or, um, or 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 made uh, from scratch, and that that would be a lot cheaper. But uh, that that would that would be costly too. That would cost millions and millions of dollars. And no, nobody had the money for that. We only got about a minute. Uh, in your article in the Spectator this week, you spoke with a Burlington sport driver, uh, sport diver, many years ago, who actually visited the site. Yeah, this uh, that was in the uh, 200th anniversary, uh, t- 2013. Uh, he, he wrote an article for a mag- diving magazine um, about this rogue dive he did. Um, him and him and some uh, buddies, and 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 he, and he for certain did it because he had the pictures to prove it. Uh, the dive had actually taken place ten years uh, before, and uh, it was quite controversial at the time because because it was supposed to be a radar system that would prevent such things from happening. But but as, as it was uh, finally disclosed, well, when he actually did the dive, it wasn't operational. But since then, there there is a radar system. Um, I didn't know when uh, before I set out to uh, write this uh, column uh, that he had actually died in uh, 2017 uh, on a on a diving mission in uh, Lake Superior. Uh, he was using this thing called a rebreather and it malfunctioned, um, and uh, yeah, he died. He wasn't in uh, deep water uh, really. He was only a meter meter and a half uh, down from the surface. Well, it's really an extraordinary story from top to bottom. Mark, thanks for sharing your insight on it, and uh, enjoy the weekend.
You too. Thanks very much, Rick. That's Mark McNeil from the Hamilton Spectator. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.